Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and this is the Multipolarista podcast, and today we're going to talk about China. The Western media has been going crazy in the past few weeks over the Chinese government's crackdown on billionaires, and we've seen incredibly histrionic, ridiculous media reporting talking about how China is going back to Mao and all of this, and we've seen that that more than 100 billionaires are no longer billionaires. Last year, more than 120 Chinese billionaires became millionaires. They lost enough wealth. And we've also seen that there have been many media reports saying that China is cracking down on billionaires. Well, this is part of a larger Chinese government-led campaign for what it calls common prosperity. China has lifted more than 850 million people out of extreme poverty since the victory of the revolution in 1949. And China has since decided that now it has developed the productive forces of its economy. It has been able to eradicate extreme poverty. So its goal is to decrease inequality. And President Xi Jinping has given speeches talking about the importance of common prosperity. That is the new campaign that the Chinese government is focusing on. So to understand what common prosperity is, to understand this crackdown on billionaires that the Western media is freaking out about, we're joined by Ian Goodrum. Ian is a journalist based in Beijing and a columnist, and he has you know, a great wealth of knowledge about the Chinese government. He has been living there in person. He understands it you know, not just from reading books. And he also, I think, has a very good perspective on socialism in the 21st century, understanding what socialism with Chinese characteristics is. So for people who are interested, I also did another episode with John Ross, who has a lot of experience in China and has written a book about China's socialist model. But I wanted to get Ian's experience as well as a Beijing-based journalist and columnist. Ian, how are you doing? It's, it's great to have you. Good to be here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I've always admired your work. I've been following you on Twitter. For people who want to check out Ian, they can check out his Twitter at ISGoodrum. He always has a lot of great information on there. So, Ian, I want to begin today responding to a Bloomberg article that you tweeted out. And I think it's a really good piece to understand this idea of common prosperity. This is a Bloomberg article titled, World's billionaire factory shutters as China cracks down. They say the meteoric rise of China's uber rich goes into reverse. And they quote this, this guy, Alan Zeman, who says, don't get bigger than the government. That's the warning he has. And they talk about how, you know, China has been cracking down on these billionaires China's richest tycoons in the Bloomberg Billionaires Index saw their combined fortune shrink by 16 billion. This article is from 2021. There was actually another Bloomberg article that you shared. This is China still has the most billion. Well, that's the because China also has the largest population, it has 1.4 billion people. But in 2021, China lost 160 billionaires amid Beijing's crackdown. And this is the article that you tweeted from Bloomberg. Let me get this up here. This is your tweet. 
Bloomberg, property tycoons lose 65 billion after China curbs excesses. And you have a section for an excerpt from this article. China's year-long campaign to control runaway property prices has pummeled its biggest developers, tanking home sales 11 months straight and obliterating 65 billion in wealth for real estate moguls. And they say President Xi Jinping's resolve to achieve common prosperity is marking a watershed sh watershed shift signaling the end of China's billionaire factory. So can you respond? I mean, what is going on in China? What is this drive for common prosperity, this crackdown on billionaires? And, you know, Bloomberg keeps using this term billionaire factory. <laughs> what, what's your response to this idea? You know, China was once a billionaire factory and now it, it's changing direction. Right. Well, I mean, the subtext of all that is that the party's over um, and and it's not. And this has been going on for quite a while where there's been these kind of breathless articles, especially in the financial press, um, which I do enjoy the schadenfreude of reading this stuff uh, from these outlets that are, you know, like setting their hair on fire and and as if they have forgotten or or, or forgot that or, or are suddenly discovering that uh, China is run by a communist party. Um, and And I mean, let's be clear, you know, like China does have very wealthy people, right? Um, it does have billionaires. It does have um, what in other places would constitute a capitalist class. But the question is, what power does that class actually hold? You know, it's not enough. There's there's a very infantile surface level analysis that takes place um, when it comes to the Chinese economy, where people point to like uh, a Lambo on the street and they say, well, this is proof, you know, China's not a uh, socialist. It's a, it's a, it's a libertarian capitalist, neoliberal, take your pick. Um, but we, you know, Marxists and socialists are aware that, that, you know, an, a bauble, uh, a fancy car is not a mode of production is not a, is not an indication of one's relationship to capital or one's place in a, in a grouping, in an economic grouping that actually has independent political power, independent power, the ability to constitute itself as a discrete force, uh, a power base that can oppose the interests of the working class in a, in a unified, organized fashion, which is what a class actually is. It's not just a guy driving around an expensive car. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like reading a lot of these articles in the financial press, you get a lot, you get a sense of... Um, of panic and despair, uh, which for their intended audience, I think may be true. Uh, but for folks like us, we're kind of grinning ear to ear, uh, and rightly so about this kind of stuff. And, and also the fact that it's not, you know, real estate companies losing $65 billion is this is happening in, in terms of, of market fluctuations and, and stock, stock valuations. So, I mean, this, this is like, and, and a lot of the, the wealthiest people's, uh, wealth is tied up in, in, in equities, in investments. And so the, the loss of value in those investments is not necessarily a direct transfer from the rich to the poor. However, it does, if we, if we take it, if we take stock valuations to indicate the, the trajectory, the, the, the believed, the perceived trajectory of a company or an industry, um, and, and a drop in value as indications that the, the economy is shifting in ways that will make those companies less profitable, um, that, that purchasing their, their stock, um, 
being a shareholder will be not a prudent investment, meaning that it won't be as profitable. Well, that means the question has to be asked, where is the economy going? What are the priorities? Where is the growth happening? Um, and what is causing this shift? And the answer is a massive campaign against the most advanced sectors of cap private capital that exist in China, which is to say real estate, which is to say tech platforms, which is to say um, the, the kind of uh, behemoth, the Golgotha of, of that we see in, in the United States and elsewhere, these kind of massively vertically integrated platforms like Facebook, um, like Amazon, like Google, you know, that they integrate all these, these many functions together and become these, these massive power bases and these massive sources of speculative wealth. Well, you know, just to, to give a brief overview, there's been, there's been big regulatory crackdowns on all these, all these sectors in China. Uh, it began when the, the IPO, the planned IPO for Ant Financial, which is the Alipay um, financial arm, was canceled. Uh, now, for those that don't live in China that don't and aren't aware, there are there are most transactions that well, maybe not most. I, I don't know the, the the specific numbers off the top of my head, but but many, if not most, transactions are now done via mobile payments. Um, and there are two main mobile play, mobile payment platforms. One is WeChat, which is a which is kind of an omnibus app by Tencent that includes mobile payment functions among its many other uses. And Alipay, which is another mobile payment service that has a lot of other functions as well. And Ant Financial is the financial kind of arm of, of Alibaba, which is the company that owns Alipay and, and, and Ant Financial. And, and Ant Group was going to be based on its growth and based on its, its development as this kind of behemoth um, that was going to be incorporating not just financial services, but, but many other services utilizing the huge amounts of, of consumer data that Alibaba has, it had a massive valuation, you know, many, many billions of dollars in valuation, which was driving the IPO. The IPO was canceled. Regulators demanded that, that Ant broke up, uh, that it became a financial holding company, that Alipay, that Alibaba pivot more closely to just being a mobile payment service. Um, and, and that IPO is functionally dead uh, and this kind of consolidation of, of, of Alibaba and Alipay and Ant as being this, you know, this, this rather large capital sector that presented, um, you know, presented a real threat of, of enormous power and influence and unchecked uh, consolidation of, of private data, which we're all too familiar with if we know anything about American tech companies. Um, this came also with a, with a massive data protection law that entered into that entered into entered into law uh, late last year that far-reaching restrictions on the collection, use, uh, and ma and maintenance and management of of data. Uh, this law, combined with the the regulatory moves against Alipay, created a silo for this data, which meant it can't be leveraged in such a way that would benefit Alibaba's bottom line or be used in a way to leverage its, its, its profit margins. So you have that, um, you have a lot of changes to the real estate system. There's been piloted 
programs. Uh, the most expensive city to live in is not actually Beijing or Shanghai, it's Shenzhen, because Shenzhen, which is a city in, in the south of China in Guangdong province, close to Hong Kong, close to Guangzhou, um, it, is a, it is a very big tech, tech city. And, it, and as we know about uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, tech, uh, tech centers tend to be extremely expensive places to live because of the huge booms. But recently, the the Shenzhen government has introduced a lot of measures to to they've they've. I mean, this this is a very large and complex kind of phenomenon. But what it all adds up to is is a is a is a a check, an enormous check on on private capital, and a, and a reassertion of the primacy of political power and state power above the power of of capitalists, above capitalists and their interests. This is essentially choking them out and preventing them from becoming a class as we would understand it in the Marxist sense of like a discrete organ, uh, a discrete political grouping that is not just a grouping that accumulates wealth, but also leverages that wealth in such a way to usurp political control from, uh, from mechanisms and, and uh, structures that have democratic accountability and that have working class representation or, or working class interests in mind. Um, so real estate, uh, to, to, to give a little background, um, there's no private ownership of land in, in, in the Chinese mainland. Um, there is only the, the leasing of land for various purposes and the length of the term of that lease uh, depends on what the land, what the build that you can build on the land and you own the building, but you don't own the land itself. So you lease out the land for terms of, of 30 to 70 years, depending on what the, the use is. For residential, it's up to 70. For uh, commercial use, it's down to 30. Uh, and traditionally, those leases are allowed to, to be renewed, but there is the fact that the government still owns the land. And so for this particular example of Shenzhen real estate, the government relisted land at a, at a far lower price than it had previously listed. And there's been an overall move to to reduce uh, land prices, which would then in turn reduce uh, housing costs. Um, that's one example. There, there are a lot of others. Uh, a main priority of the of the Chinese government, something that that President Xi has said many times, and that has been oft repeated, uh, and I think we can all agree with, is that houses are for living in and not for speculation. So there's been a lot of of policy to curb and and limit. Uh, Housing is a vehicle for for speculation, for rampant invest, like as primarily as an investment vehicle, rather than something that you dwell in as a roof over your head that you need in order to live a, a decent life. Um, and and so you know all these things work together. There's other things too. The the uh, similarly to what we know about uh, Uber and and uh, food delivery programs, uh, Postmates, DoorDash, what have you in the US, there are those pro there are those platforms in China as well. Um, there have been massive efforts to uh, create rules for those platforms. Sim again, not using data irresponsibly, but also protecting the rights of the drivers, uh, guaranteeing that they earn a decent wage, that they're, that they're, the algorithms are not, creating an, an impossible workflow for people um, that algorithms won't punish delivery drivers for finding a shorter route, which has happened uh, in the past. 
um, and and generally uh, encouraging membership of these drivers in, in a union as well. So there has been a constant emphasis also when it comes to this, when it comes to data protection, when it comes to real estate, when it comes to uh, these, these services, these service platforms, that the interests, the primary interests in all these, these moves, and there have been many of them, as I've said, that, that the interests are of the people broadly, the working class uh, and, and the broader sectors of society, rather than the owners who, rather than benefiting as they have from something of a bonanza in the past, uh, a less regulation, um, which was, you know, that was, that was the environment, uh, in previously, you know, the, 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 because these industries are new, um, and because China was in a phase of, of kickstarting economic growth, there was less of a framework for, uh, le- to creating this policy. And so now we have that, uh, and, and we're seeing that being used, uh, in a way that, that, you know, universally benefits um, the people that that should be benefiting from these gains, the the workers, um, the when it comes to data, the users, when it comes to real estate, the the home buyers or the the, the tenants, um, things that we like, right? And again, it's very funny to then see all these things that to me and I think to many other people, you we could use some more of that in our own country, like in, in my own country in, 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 in the West, um, that's my reaction. And I think many other people's reactions, but then the writers of these, these publications, which tend to be financial publications. So it's all about like, how can you make money off China in X, Y, or Z way? Well, now there is less of an opportunity for that or, or in some industries, no opportunity at all. And so they all become like chicken littles uh, all of a sudden, even though, People understood that there was a communist party in charge this whole time, but but people are only just suddenly figuring this out, um, even though the country's been moving this direction for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, the the greatest chicken little in modern history is Gordon Chang, right, mm-hmm. who wrote that book, The Coming Collapse of China, over 20 years ago and constantly. 2001, yeah. yeah, yeah. So and, and, then, and, then, and then he writes a follow-up article five or 10 years later about how I was wrong that time, but this time. I'm right this time. Exactly. It just never gets old. You know, we we were talking about the press. I want to look really briefly here at some of the press coverage because it's really instructive and we can respond to it. You, you, Ian, you used a term at the beginning of your talk, your, um, your response there. You said the party's over, right? Well, here's an article in the guardian of Blairism, the mouthpiece of the British national security state. And the headline is the party's over. China's clampdown on its tech billionaires. And this article is from 2021. I want to I want to look at three phases of articles here. So I went through t- this morning and I found a bunch of articles and about China's crackdown on billionaires. And I, I think they're organized kind of in three groups. And from what I've seen, this kind of started in 2021. And that was that was also when Xi Jinping really stressed this idea of common prosperity. And when the Communist Party announced, first of all, it had its 100th anniversary, and it also announced that it had ended absolute poverty, lifting more than 800 million people out of poverty, which is an incredible, monumental achievement. So what happened is the first wave of articles was about the Communist Party's crackdown on tech corporations. 
And this is an article in, in The Guardian. There's another article here in, in Forbes. And let me get this up. Forbes is, of course, another Western financial publication. This is from 20, December 2021. Quote, China's internet billionaires suffer $73 billion wipeout as economy slows and government cracks down. And then we also see this, this, this refrain here that the government is always on the verge of collapse. The, as Gordon Chang says, the economy is always, is always shrinking or, or, or it's not growing fast enough. Here's an article in CNBC in September 2021. China's crackdown fallout in world's biggest wealth drop, a billionaire loses $27 billion. So those are articles about the crackdown on the financial industry. And then this year, we've seen another wave of articles that are specifically about the crackdown on real estate. This is an article that was just published in the Sydney Morning Herald. Golden days are over. So once again, the party's over. China's property tycoons suffer $90 billion meltdown. And they talk about the China Evergrande Group. And I'll ask you about that in a second. This, you know, this was an example of the Communist Party cracking down on this major corporation. Here's another article at Business Standard. Again, we see this is another financial publication. Property tycoons lose $65 billion amid China's common prosperity goal. And they see once uh, this is from Bloomberg, actually. So this is just a reprint of Bloomberg, but Bloomberg's behind a uh, behind a paywall. President Xi Jinping's resolve to achieve common prosperity is marking a watershed shift, signaling the end of China's property billionaire factory. Finally, you know, there were other articles about an, another wave of these articles was about China's crackdown on the private education and tutoring industry. Yes. And I want to highlight this article here. This is the article about how China lost 160 billionaires in 2021. How, oh, how sad. Who's going to think of the, the lost 160 billionaires? He, so it talks about the, Har the Harun Global Rich List, which tracks the wealth of billionaires. China lost 160 members of its billionaire club in 2021. And, and the researcher noted that the billionaires who lost much of their wealth were in the following industries, e-commerce, real estate, education, education, generic drugs, and vaping. So I think what we're seeing here is that the government has decided that there are certain industries that have kind of predatory practices, and the government has started to break them up. So I kind of summarized what those industries are, but maybe you can you can provide more details about specifically who are the billionaires being targeted, what are the companies being targeted, and what is the government saying about why it's going after these industries? Well, I mean, I went over the I went over some of them um, before, and I mean, I think, like I said, also the loss of wealth is not like direct government taking money, although there has been a, a widespread crackdown on tax evasion um, among celebrities and, and among other their wealthy people. So, I mean, there, there has been direct transfers as well. Uh, and there have been there have been uh, in the, in the wake of some of this, uh, many of these tech companies are rushing to donate billions and billions of yuan um, to anti-poverty initiatives, to social I mean, you know, corporate social responsibility is its own 
kind of weird thing, but it's it's a little different in a place like China where you have the full weight of the state kind of uh, bearing down on you and and showing that you know if if you don't if you don't play ball there could be trouble in the future. Um, and so there have been sort of direct moves of like many billions to to some of these causes. Um, you mentioned education as well. This is this is also of a piece of the same um, the same campaign because there is, you know, there is a very, you know, for for kids studying to go to college, there is a very high stakes, high pressure system because there is one big exam, the Gaokao, that happens every year. We're actually, it's actually happening right now, um, and it it is it is the test, and so there are are a lot there were and there still are but but limited now um a lot of for-profit tutoring companies doing um after school sessions and and extra extra things to kind of give kids an extra an extra lift but those services are quite expensive because parents are willing to spend a lot of money to make sure their kid has has as as good a chance as possible to get into some of the best universities in the country and so you had an industry built around kind of extra, extra education, you know, like, which, you know, like has its benefits, but also has its obvious disadvantages because you're limiting this, this boost to those who can afford it. And that's not everybody. And so, uh, and, and the, the, you know, the, the huge workload that, that kids are faced with and, and, and the, the limits on their after school time to just be, kids, you know, to, to, to play, to be social, to, to find, you know, like good outlets for energy and, and time um, isn't possible if, if they're spending every waking hour doing extra schoolwork or, um, or things like that. So there was a, a move last year to make all these companies register as nonprofits, limiting the curricula they were covering, limiting the the age groups they were covering and the hours that they uh, would provide. And as a result of that, because their business model is based on squeezing parents, uh, families um, for extra money for a, for a chance at, at a university educate, like a, a, a high, you know, top tip top university education um, that they may not actually be providing the support for, they may just be squeezing people for their money. Um, a lot of value got sucked out of that industry because it was that the profit motive was, was a, a functionally removed. And so as with many of these other, in, other industries, when you see stock devaluations happening, it means, well, what is the priority in the economy? Is this a good bet as an investor? Well, if you're if the industry is no longer able to suck families dry, then it's not a good investment. And so the stock will drop and the value will drop. And so you are seeing this happening with a lot of industries that were previously seen as like great investment opportunities, growth opportunities for uh, for people both inside and outside the country. But that but the the financialization of these industries and the transformation of these industries into kind of, again, speculative vehicles um has been blunted with these with these measures and so it also has the effect of preventing kind of wild speculative movement uh you know big spikes big big peaks big valleys big crashes like all that kind of uncertainty that leads to economic crisis so then in a, in a in a sense this is also a means to prevent 
the kind of cataclysm that people like Gordon Chang and many others are have been yelling from the rooftops for decades. Um, this is another way by which the the economy is able to prevent that from happening. Um, yeah, with real estate, I mean, there's also there's also been massive pushes to to build millions and millions of public housing units as an alternative to 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 uh, private private real estate developers. Evergrande is is an example of that. You know, they were they were promising too much uh, to too many people. Um, they were were not servicing their promissory duties as a as a builder, and they were continuing to attempt to kind of leverage themselves and 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 turn themselves into another kind of you know like where it becomes financialized and it becomes less about actually building stuff and more about valuations and 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 speculative value and so they weren't servicing their accounts and so the government said we're not going to bail you out you're going to you're going to dedicate your huge uh resources to doing what you promised and building homes for people and at lower cost than than you than you expected because the priority again is housing for people to live in rather than to use as a as a means of speculation and so there was, um, you know, there were apocalyptic stories about Evergrande and it's still, you know, it's still an evolving situation, but at one point the, the, the chairman had to pull millions, tons of his own money out to, to put into the company, not to um, do any financial chicanery, but just to continue to build what was promised. And so there is, even with these, these private developers, they're facing these moments that could be moments of crisis. And rather than the, the government backing a big dump truck of money up to them with, with their own revenues, the way that happened after the financial crisis in 2008, the, the government saying tough, uh, you know, do, do what you said you were going to do and, and build these, these apartments, these houses for people, or we're going to, we're going to buy you and do it ourselves and we're not going to give it back. And it'll just be a, a state, a, a state housing company. And there are already, there are many, many, you know, the, the, the largest real estate developers and the largest real estate companies are state companies. So they have the resources to do it. And, and, and the, the fact that the, the major arms of financing are state banks and not, and not, uh, and not private banks and not private capital. Um, you know, there is an emphasis on when it comes to financing, like what benefit are you providing for people? Like, what are you, what is the social good? What is the, what is the tangible, uh, material result from whatever financing you're asking for? And if, and, and you know, it, it tends to be, um, it, it tends to be such that if, if, a, if a private company is, is facing a situation like this. Well, the solution is not to, um, as I said, not to bail them out, not to let them die and then, you know, wreck a sector of the economy, but to to buy them out at cost and 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 run it responsibly, um, which has happened with which has happened with uh, several uh, several large firms. I mean, there's been insurance firms where that's happened recently. There's been there have been real estate firms where that's happened recently. So I mean, there has been, you know, a shift. Um, both directly and indirectly from in many of these kind of large pools of private capital are returned to the state sector. It's not a full scale 
nat like mass nationalization campaign, even though I think many of us would cheer that on as well. Um, it's been a more kind of, you know, slow and measured process, but you know, the, some, some of these, these private entities are proving themselves to be too rapacious and too in, and incapable of, of responsibly handling, um, uh, taking on this, this, this burden of, of, well, it is a responsibility and, and, and many entities have proven themselves not up to the task. And so the government has stepped in and, uh, and, and fixed it in a way that doesn't benefit, um, doesn't benefit the capitalists the same way that we see, uh, that we saw happen with, uh, with bankers on wall street in 2007 and 2008, you know, they all turned out fine, but it's, that's not happening for a lot of these, a lot of these folks in China. They're getting the short end of the stick as well they should yeah i think you 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 made that point very well that that this the comparison between what china's response has been and what the u.s government's response has been really reflects how different their economic systems are and in china the state is in control of the economy the land is publicly owned the commanding heights of the economy including the telecommunications public infrastructure the largest companies and the largest banks are state-owned, whereas in the U.S., the state is run by large corporations and the capitalist class, and they're completely opposites in that sense. They're complete opposites. And I, sh I should mention. I should mention the there is a distinction. Um, the state owns the urban land. The urban land is owned by the state. Uh, rural land um, is actually owned and maintained by collectives still. So um the the administrative units of villages or uh, townships or uh, counties um or at an even smaller level um sometimes when it just depends on what the what the situation what the specifics of a, of a locality are but the the rural economy is still collectively owned and and administered by um some structure some some governing structure that uh that villagers uh, have a stake in. So it could be a cooperative, um, it could be a rural industrial uh, administrative group, um, but they, but the, the ownership of the land continues to belong to. And so like, if there's a cooperative on the land that, that has been leased the land by, by a rural collective body, um, the, the villagers in that, space within the borders of that of that uh polity um have uh, they they can farm depending on what the what the use of the land is they can farm it themselves or they can or they can hire it out but or they can do nothing um and they and they get a portion of whatever the returns are from the the use of that land so even though the, the the urban land is 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 state owned outside of the urban areas you've got an even more um kind of traditionally what what we would call socialist or communist um system running out there so i mean it, it's 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 a much more interesting place than i think a lot of people give it credit for and extremely complex i mean we're talking about the most populous country on earth 1.4 billion people i i just a lot of people don't keep that perspective in mind. The population is four times the population of the United States. I mean, massive, massive, complex country. But on this on this point of co-ops in the countryside, I want to 
plug an article that I published at multipolarista.com written by Joel Schulten, who's a really good contributor. It's called How China Strengthened Food Security and Fought Poverty with State-Funded Cooperatives. And Yes, I, I read this. It's, it's, it's very good. I recommend anybody who hasn't take a look at it. Yeah, and his article, I mean, again, you can find it at multipolarista.com. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but some of it draws on another article that was published in the South China Morning Post in 2019. And I like this headline. Xi Jinping turns to Mao Zedong era system to lift millions of China's rural poor out of poverty. They say yeah. Xi has pledged to lift millions of rural poor out of poverty. He's re he's revitalizing a Mao era system. More than 10,000 primary supply and marketing cooperatives were set up in the previous six years. That is from 2013 to 2019. And state funding for them is growing fast. So there's yeah. people can check out that article. But um, Ian, I want to yeah, respond the, to the the, the 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 boogeyman. You know, they they can't. SCMP is not like they, they don't always. They're not always great, but um, but they tend to be better than most, I think, um, because they're based in. I'm like this is the thing about the the differences in media outlets, right? Financial publications aren't some secret tome of the ruling class, like the golden tablets that tell us what they're really thinking. You know, that's, that's not how that works, but their audience is comprised, like does have people that need to, that, that want to, you know, maybe consider living or, or trying to do business in these places code for, you know, uh, make a tidy profit. Um, and, and the, so there has to be, accurate reporting on how the economy actually works in these publications because otherwise you'll get you know that's the audience isn't interested in that you know so so you do get somewhat accurate like relatively accurate reporting from these financial rags not because they're uniquely uh good at it or uniquely honest but that you know they're 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 serving a different constituency than like the new york times does you know the new york times is pure ideology um really just really just bash 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 um and and very little accounting for realities if it can't be spun in a certain way whereas you with your bloombergs your fortunes your your forbes you know there's still plenty of the spin but they have to sort of report on realities and and so um it's just interesting just i interrupt you i apologize but the uh but the scmp story of like well we can't pretend this is bad because <laughs> I think most people would like this if they heard about it. So let's invoke the specter of Mao Zedong yeah. and make people like, ah, you know, afraid of the boogeyman. But, you know, again, for us, it's like, that ah, it sounds pretty good to me. So yeah, it's dope. Uh, yeah, no, it's funny. They always, they say they're the China is regressing back to the Mao era. And a lot of people are like, sweet, cool, more, more, yeah. uh, more socialism, more disciplining of the, of their wealthy. Um, but, you know, there was a few points I wanted to respond to that you made, Ian. And one was that, you know, that these these industries that the Chinese government has been cracking down on tend to be the parasitic industries that are not productive. You talked about the financialization of these industries. I haven't seen reports of China cracking down on industries that actually produce things that people need or want. Right. It's cracking down on real estate speculation, which obviously helps no one except their wealthy real estate speculators. It's cracking down on private education services, which, I mean, 
it's some kind of service, but it, this is done to to create more inequality in society, and and it's, it puts more pressure on children. This is not a productive industry. Cracking down on e-commerce, and then I guess you, the only I guess the the only productive economy they've cracked down is vaping. But that productive economy also causes cancer, and who else? Who knows what other uh, illnesses and stuff. I so, can't believe they want to regulate this technology that we have no idea what the long-term effects might be. Let me suck my tobacco juice, please. I must have it. <laughs> yeah. The, the American way is allowing, uh, you know, advertisements for tobacco to kids and stuff and about how cool smoking is and all, and all like your favorite Hollywood. TV I want, I want popcorn long at the age of 35, please give it to me. <laughs> so I, I want to, point out um i want to look at two other articles here and then i have another question about common prosperity so here is a hilarious article in vice.empire the uh you know hipster imperialist oh, yes. outlet i love this 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 article headline is so funny why are chinese billionaires 500 billion poorer 500 billion dollars poorer than last year and then i love this this subtitle here the picture is even bleaker in russia where total billionaire wealth has plummeted as the country's richest are rocked by sanctions. How bleak it is that billionaires are losing their wealth in both China and Russia. Uh, the West must come and save them, save the billionaires. But you, you, remember, the days, you remember the days whenever Vice, Vice was marketing itself as like being a real alternative kind of media source, and now they're just <laughs> openly lamenting the loss of wealth for billionaires. I mean... Vice is a whole other thing. I mean, they their propaganda yeah, yeah, is so crazy. But, um, but we were talking about you know all this this fear mongering about regressing to Mao and all this stuff. Here's an article by the senior business columnist at the Sydney Morning Herald: Billionaire crackdown, China's risky new pathway to Mao's common prosperity. So, can you talk about what common prosperity is? This is a term that actually it does go back to Mao. That's true. Yeah. But she, President Xi, has recently, in the past few years, has really emphasized this. And I believe that in, in the speech that he gave on the, the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, I think he mentioned common prosperity like over 30 times. He mentioned this term dozens of times. So what, what is this new campaign led by the government? Now that, you know, that for the 40 years since the 1980s, since 78 and the rise of Deng Xiaoping, the government was talking about the importance of building the productive forces, developing the economy, because their, their argument, their analysis was that you can't really develop socialism with poverty. So you have to develop the productive forces. You can't develop socialism with a partially feudal economy. You have to develop the economy. And then my understanding is that the, the, the government, the Communist Party, has, has made the assessment that they now have developed the productive forces enough. They have eliminated extreme poverty. So now their goal is no longer just raising, you know, the productive forces, but also cracking down on inequality and common prosperity. So talk more about what this program is. Well, it's true that the, the term common prosperity does go back to Mao Zedong. Um, but I think the roots of this go before the actual use of the, the term common prosperity, because at the at the 19th National Congress of the CPC, uh, Xi in his political report announced that the primary contradiction in Chinese society had changed. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the notion of contradiction, it's very, very important in the theoretical history of the, China, of the, of the Communist Party. 
of, of Mao Zedong, his, his essay on contradiction is a, is a seminal work in the, in the theoretical development of the CPC. Um, and, and one of the things Mao talked about in that, and also on the correct handling of contradictions among the people is that there is a primary contradiction and then there are secondary contradictions that flow from that primary contradiction. Um, and that there are antagonistic and non-antagonistic contradictions, and there are those that are handled among the people, and then those that are handled between the people and their enemies, and so on and so forth. But that notion has persisted of, of the idea of there being a primary contradiction, naming it, and ascertaining how to resolve it, and then move to the next one. So uh, previously with, with Deng Xiaoping, um, the primary contradiction was the contradiction between backward productive forces and and the desire for uh, a better life, um, and then with Xi with Xi at the the nineteenth CPC Congress, the he announced that the primary contradiction had shifted to the contradiction between unbalanced and unequal development and the people's desire for a better life. So that was a that was back in twenty seventeen. It was actually right after I got to China. I got I got here in September of twenty seventeen. And the 19th Congress was in October of 2017. So it's been, you know, like that had been announced. It didn't get that much attention because I think, among, well, for a number of reasons. I mean, I think also for those of us that don't have, or for not those of us, but for those who are writing about China who don't have a background in like Marxist theory or understanding any of these concepts or like, the historical or theoretical grounding of of the governance philosophy of the CPC and its its background there, uh, which is basically everyone, um, because they don't care about that stuff. They don't take it seriously. They think it's uh, you know Cold War's over. It doesn't matter. America won. End of history. So on and so forth. But we know history did not end in 1991, um, despite the pronouncements of of so many. And this was a big deal. You know, one of the first things I wrote. Uh, since coming here was about how important that that naming of the primary contradiction mattered and, and how it signaled a shift. And so even back then I was saying, well, this shows us that unbalanced and unequal development is now the top priority of the CPC in the country at large. And that could mean a number of things, you know, the, the, the unequal development between urban areas and rural areas the uneven development or the unequal development between um, uh, the, the, the Eastern and Western and Central regions, because of course the East coast of China is, is heavily populated and, and the most, uh, you know, was the beneficiary of China's rapid development. Uh, and so there was, there is an income inequality between regions of China uh, as well. And so, this question of, well, how will it get done? Well, now we're seeing how this is how, um, you know, it wasn't just talk. It wasn't just empty, empty sloganeering the way I think a lot of people treat, um, these, these political reports and, and these philosophical and theoretical discussions, you know, these do matter. Uh, it, it's not just endless formalism and bureaucrat ease the way it's dismissed by so many. This, this stuff has a, has a basis in history and a basis in, in the way that the party conducts itself and the way communists think. Um, and so the notion of common prosperity, again, uh, this idea that Deng Xiaoping was not a Marxist and, and, and wanted to just open up the floodgates and let let in capital and, and, and have a feeding frenzy. 
granted, you know, the 1990s and the and the early 2000s were a period where there was uh, there was a prioritization of economic growth above all else. And this manifested itself in GDP growth rates, you know, like China prioritized heavily the GDP growth because it understood that this was it was necessary to kind of kickstart development the same way that the Soviet Union understood it had to in the early years. Now, the Soviet Union faced dire threats of invasion from all sides and was invaded uh, at, at the start and then consolidated itself into the Soviet Union after that intervention failed. Uh, China was in a little bit of a different position where it didn't have to, to, to kind of shock war communism style or, or you know, rapid uh, uh, hyperspeed uh, growth. It was able to do that over a, a longer period of time. It had the luxury of peace. It had the luxury of still being under imperialist encirclement you know, that never went away. But the threat of war was not as imminent as it was in the early years of the Soviet Union. And so they were able to undertake this, this process of reform and opening up, which did bring in foreign capital, foreign investment, but on China's terms, on China's rules, again, to make sure that uh, a capitalist power base, whether foreign or domestic, could not consolidate itself, could not uh, coalesce into a discrete force to oppose popular power and worker power in the country. And so this notion that, oh, well, this is the thing, the, the dictum of, of Deng Xiaoping that, get, that got quoted a lot was some will get rich first, right? Which is, which is taken to mean that, um, you know, there will be some accumulation of wealth uh, within China and, and as a result of, of foreign investment, which, you know, is foreign exploitation. There was exploitation. There still is exploitation. There's still plenty of value being extracted from the Chinese worker cl working class by foreign capital. That hasn't that hasn't gone away. It's been diminished over time, and it will continue to be diminished, which is obviously a very good thing. Um, but it's not completely gone. But what people forget that Deng Xiaoping also said after some will get rich first is that they will then help everyone else to get rich as well. So it was a grad. It was a process that has been articulated by generations of leadership of the CPC. Uh, it, you know, this is not coming out of nowhere, right? This was always the second half of that statement. It's just that people only wanted to quote the first half that lined up with their preconceived notions about how China worked, what the CPC was doing. They thought again that it was like a bonanza, you know, like a all-you-can-eat buffet, and 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 China's economy was there for the taking. Now what they're figuring out is no. There were always limits to investment. There were always limits to to foreign entanglement in, and 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 capital accumulation. There was always going to be a reckoning. There was always going to be a moment where the other shoe dropped, and and now we're seeing it. And I think most people are responsible enough not to treat this as like a, a, a kind of huge shock, but some people, of course, are. Um, but certainly, for a time, even among the left, you know, I I I, I remember your talk with, um, with John Ross and with, with Michael Hudson um, and, and talking about like, for example, David Harvey, right? Who treated Deng Xiaoping as an equivalent figure in the history of neoliberalism to Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Well, it's funny because David Harvey has himself come around yeah. since then. And, and him and, and Richard Wolff and, and the late Samir Amin and, and many other Marxist economists um, who in the 90s and early 2000s, not unreasonably, 
thought that China was moving in this direction of of becoming, you know, an exploited, na a, a totally exploited nation, and and and, a, and an essential cog in the kind of neoliberal turn of the world economic system. We're seeing now that the reality is a lot more complicated, and China is making its own turn. You know, the Chinese people stood up in 1949, and they're still standing now, and they are not going to let themselves become subjugated to uh, to any kind of foreign invasion, whether it's happening at the tip of a bayonet or happening at the at the end of a briefcase. You know, so this is the logical conclusion of that theory that people were dismissing as, as unimportant. Um, and this is the expression of that in the present time. This is the next step in 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 making that come to fruition and the next step in kind of the evolution of, of China and its understanding of socialism, its understanding of Marxism. Um, how it govern its, governs its economy and how it continues to derive benefit for the vast majority of working people and vast majority of people in the country, rather than, uh, you know, a tiny minority that enriches itself at the expense of others and does so by co consolidating itself politically uh, and, and gaining, you know, bourgeois capitalist class consciousness and using that to, to seize the machinery of the state and the economy to, to completely enrich itself. There, that process has not happened the way I think many expected it to. Um, and people are figuring it out. Like I said, the, the, there are many respected figures um, who admit that they got China wrong. And, and I appreciate the, that their willingness to do that. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to see it. I, I, I'm very pleased. So, and I think many people in the U.S. who are suffering from a number of crises that are just bubbling beneath the surface or fully turning into a conflagration are, despite the the tremendous uh, fog of of anti-China reports in the media, these kind of scaremongering stories about all these evil, very terrible, no good, very bad things that China is supposedly doing they are looking at a country that is doing many things they would like to see their own countries doing. And that reality, those facts, that indisputable truth is piercing the fog to some degree and helping people understand better and helping people to question the kind of narratives that have been forming about China and many other countries. So I only see good things in the future. This is, I think this is a, one of many positive steps the country has taken, and I look forward to seeing uh, even more in the future. Yeah, very well said. And I agree with you that it's good to see that some of these figures who got China really wrong have come around, of course, that should be welcomed. I know I, I did see that David Harvey has come around a little bit. He talked about specifically these debates that he had with Giovanni Arrighi, who is a really, he was an interesting Italian economist and a world system analyst. And he wrote this book, Beijing, it's Adam Smith in Beijing. And in, in, and David Harvey talks about these debates that he had where, and he, he's, he published a video. I, actually, I was made aware of this after we, I did the interview with John Ross, that David Harvey has kind of done a, uh, has had a change of heart, which is good. So anyway, um, I know it's very late for you. It's, it's almost midnight. It is midnight there in Beijing. So I have one final question. And then I'll let you go to sleep. Um, sure. you, you talked about the the 
serious ideological discussions going on within the Communist Party of China. And there is this very patronizing, even racist idea in parts of the Western left about China and the Communist Party, that it's only communist in name, that there's no real Marxists, that of course we should keep in mind that the Communist Party of China has, I believe, what, 90 million members? So no, 95, 95 now, yeah. Yeah, almost 100 million members. This is massive and incredibly massive. Obviously, if you have 95 million people, you're going to have a lot of different ideological views, a lot of debate going on. But there are very serious Marxist discussions going on. There are many, many um, universities and academic programs, including, you know, state-backed programs dedicated to studying Marxism, studying the Soviet Union, to, to having a lot of these ideological debates. And I want to bring an article again, this is through the perspective of the bourgeois press, but I think it's an interesting article. This was published just this month, a week ago on June 6th, and it's in Bloomberg. Once again, uh, you know, a mouthpiece of billionaire oligarch Michael Bloomberg. The, the article is titled Marxism makes a comeback in China's crackdown Unquote disorderly capital. The, the subhead is traditional Western economics, that is uh, neoliberal economics, is out of favor as Xi Jinping's government's government funds research, excuse me, as Xi Jinping's government funds research on socialist political economy with Chinese characteristics. And there's a lot of there are many interesting quotes in this article, but I want to go down to one in particular. Xi, who turned 69 in June, formed his early political views in the 1960s at the high point of Marxist influence in China. At one point, they don't mention this in the article, but at one point I know that uh, she actually lived in a cave and was working in the countryside. So, I mean, he really understood the conditions of the most impoverished, humble peasants in China. And there's an article in here, or sorry, there's a quote in here from Xi that he gave in one of his last, last major speeches as party leader before becoming president in 2013. So this is a speech that Xi gave almost 10 years ago now, quote, Marx and Engels analysis of the basic contradictions of capitalist society is not outdated, nor is the historical materialist view that capitalism is bound to die out and socialism bound to win. And then they say by 2015, she was calling for breaking from the stranglehold of Western influence economics, that is neoliberal economics, urging Chinese academics to summarize the nation's experience into a new body of theory, which he called Chinese Marxist political economy. And then they talk about with a change in the universities, a new theory has become a major priority, which is called socialist political economy with Chinese characteristics. So concluding here, maybe can you talk about some of this ideological discussion going on? What, what is socialist political economy with Chinese characteristics? And, and what, what are the kind of currents going on within the Communist Party and within the state itself? I mean, not just in the Communist Party. You know, there are state officials who, you know, they're trying to not only understand these Marxist ideas, but implement them. And of course, implementation is, is, is something very different. So, uh, you know, what is the situation like ideologically? Right. I mean, the way I the way I tend to put it is that 
you know, there was never a wholesale abandonment of Marxism as, as the governing philosophy of the CPC, but there certainly was a de-emphasis um, and, and a kind of, you know, like, I think about it like the way a pend pendulum kind of, you know, swings back and forth. And I think for a time in the, in the post 78 generation of, of leadership, really the, the, the post nineties generation of leadership, um, you had a de-emphasis of it. it. Didn't, like I say, it didn't go away, but you did have, you know, less, less of it palpable in, in daily rhetoric and daily speech. Um, there were some academics that made the, uh, let's say, bold prediction that in, in this uh, contemporary to this time that were saying things like, oh, we think that the, China, the, the Chinese Communist Party is going to rebrand itself as the Chinese Social Democratic Party. Uh, we think they're going to do that. And so <laughs> <laughs> you can go back and read the like the JSTOR yeah. articles. They're still there. Yeah. People thought this was going to happen. Um, and, you know, like, again, this was the, the if there was a moment where China was closest to regressing into capitalism, that was the moment. And that's and and, and that de-emphasis on official Marxism is part of it. Um, now, well, and, and the Tiananmen color revolution was was part of that, too. <laughs> Right, but I mean, th th this is this is more to do with like the the economic reforms of the 1990s. After that, so um, and so there was a there was a, a period of time where there was less focus on it. I mean, there were university departments of Marxism, but they weren't very well funded. They were pretty they were pretty low prestige positions. You know, like the real the real influence was in like business and finance. You know, like that was the emphasis. But now. The research dollars are moving in the other direction again, and now Marxism-Leninism, Marxism schools are getting, uh, and researchers are getting a ton of funding uh, for new projects. And so, uh, even even in objective terms, in terms of state spending on on research, uh, there's it's it's good times, good times for Marxists in in the academy. Um, but in terms and and you know like. Marxism was never left out of the curriculum in Chinese public schools either. Um, there is, and again, as you said, there are 95 million people in the Communist Party of China. There are 1.4 billion people in the country. You're not going to, you know, not everybody is a dyed-in-the-wool revolutionary, you know, true red, red-hearted Maoist or, 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 or Marxist or what have you. You know, there will be, you will meet cynical people who don't think uh, that, that China is socialist or Marxist or whatever. Um, and that's going to happen. You know, everybody's not going to be wearing, wearing a badge and, uh, and singing, you know, socialism is good. Um, which, which is a song. <laughs> it's, it's the title of the song. Um, but you know, it, the way I think about it is also interesting because in, in real material terms, if you ask somebody, not everybody, there's plenty of believers and there's plenty of people that that do believe that China's on the right track and do believe in socialism um but it but okay you it, you you take an average Chinese person who doesn't think that China's socialist thinks it's capitalist whatever you ask them do you or do you think China's socialist and they say ah, I don't know no they, they don't think that but if you ask them does does Ma Yuan the 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 former chair of Alibaba um who has more power right like this guy, Ma Yuan, or the Communist Party, right? Or like the CPC Central Committee. Like, basically, if you're asking, like, does political power trump uh, private capital, economic power? They, everybody would say yes, right? That's un undisputed by the vast majority, I would say, of Chinese people. So 
in the abstract theoretical sense, if you ask them if they think China's socialist, they would say no. But if you ask them a material question that basically implies that China is socialist, they will agree with that, uh, which I find very interesting. Um, but yeah, official Marxism in the public schools did not have the best reputation for a time. It was treated as kind of this, this, um, you know, this, this formality. It was a rote memorization course. You know, people didn't take it seriously. Now, I think with the re-emphasis on Marxism in all sectors of life and, and the constant exhortation of, of basic Marxist principles, which she speaks about every chance he gets, which is interesting, uh, you know, like it clearly has a theoretical grounding in this stuff. So it's, it's, if it is being cynically deployed, it's being very effect, like very, uh, uh, in a very sophisticated fashion. So I lean toward it's being genuine. Um, but, but it'd be interesting to see what the, what the, the generation that's growing up right now, how it views, uh, Marxism. And I think there's, there's been opinion, there's been polling surveys of young people in China who like by margins of like 80 something percent consider themselves Marxists, Right. And I mean, possibly that's just an, you know, I'm sure there's people that are just echoing popular attitudes, but I don't know. It's a, it, that's an interesting thing too. It's like the young people are like saying, no, I'm just, I, yeah. Marx. Like what, whatever that means for them, who knows? But, but the fact that there's a self-identification going on there. So this, this campaign, um, you know, the, this notion of, of Marxist Chinese socialist political economy is, you know, it's political, like political economy originated in Marx anyway, right? Like capital is one of the first major works of political economy there is. And so it's, it's Marxism with a, with a different name and, and, and an understanding that Marxism needs to be applied to Chinese, China's conditions. You know, what works for China can't necessarily work it's not a one-to-one kind of plug and play scenario. Um, and so there's, there's that kind of emphasis because China wants to emphasize that this is their path. This is their system. This is their uh, philosophy. And so attempting to emulate it wouldn't work anywhere else. Just like emulating the Soviet union's experience didn't work for China. You know, Soviet union said that the, that the, the urban proletariat is the revolutionary base and the most revolutionary class, but China, under Mao Zedong, under the Red Army, was able to organize the peasantry along with the with the proletariat and encircle the cities from the countryside and wage their revolutionary campaign that way. So there's always innovations and always new developments. And so I would say this this development of of a new political economy is just another extension of that. Right, the application to concrete material conditions um, and and the the blueprint for the future and the blueprint for what the country looks like, you know when it gets to be 2049, a hundred years after the revolution was a success, China will be a very different place than it was in, in 1949. It'll be a very different place than what it is right now. And so the theory has to keep developing. And so these, the applications of these ideas backed by um, a communist party that while it has internal discussions and, and constant debate it practices democratic centralism. And so there is a, a unified decision-making process and right, you know, this is the decision-making process that has led to where we are at this moment. You know, this is the, the march of history has led us to this point where common prosperity is the goal. The, res the resolution of this contra particular contradiction is the goal. And then you assess, you create plans 
to resolve them. And then when that goal has been met, then you move on to the next one and you continue to resolve until you get, you know, higher stages of socialism as it's, you know, China still considers itself being in the primary stage of socialism. So there's more stages to go and then on to communism in the future. So it's, it's all, to me, it's about scientific um, analysis of material conditions, concrete conditions, and the theory developing with those conditions in a dialectical process, you know, basic Marxism. And, and this is, this is the latest iteration of, of that, of that way of thinking. Yeah, I know she has said that that the Communist Party's goal is to be a great modern socialist society by 2050. And of course, 2049 will be the 100th anniversary of the revolution. So, yeah, I think it's very important to keep in mind that it is it's a process. It's not simply, you know, uh, China is is set in stone and it's never going to change economically, politically. It's always evolving. So I want I know um, it's very late for Ian and I want to let him go sleep because it's past midnight in Beijing. I just want to highlight a few comments here. Um, this is a uh, Zeiss says who says as a Malaysian who has been living in China since 1998, I would say Ian knows China. So there's a lot of good compliments, Ian, that you've been getting people saying that your analysis is great. Um, it's nice it's great to see a perspective that's just not you know, the insane Western media perspective that that amounts to China bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to thank uh, Kylie Wooley for the Kylie Wool Wooley for the super chat. Thanks. Thanks to AK Lee for the super chat. And uh, there was a good discussion going on here. Um, lots of lots of people. But unfortunately, like I said, it's pretty late for Ian. So I'm going to wrap up here. This Video is available, of course, on YouTube where it's streaming now, but it's also available on Rockfin and it's available on Rumble and Odyssey in case my channel ever gets nuked by the Google overlords. So you can find my channel backed up in multiple places. And then, of course, if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista. And if you want to follow Ian's work, I would highly recommend following him on Twitter. He's a great follow at IS Goodrum. Uh, very good follower on Twitter. And Ian, um, where if people want to find more of your analysis and more of your work, where can they where can they read it? Well, I, uh, I, I put I I usually send my stuff both to People's World and China Daily. So and sometimes CGTN as well. Um, so you can search my name and any of those outlets and you'll be able to find whatever I've been writing. So uh, I, I try to keep it to once a week, but I, it's, it's an entirely self-imposed schedule. So, I mean, who can say when I'll write something again, <laughs> but hopefully this week. <laughs> Great. And is there anything else that you want to plug before you wrap up? Uh, um, read Lennon. <laughs> That's I'll, plug, I'll, plug, plug. <laughs> I'll plug Lennon. I don't think he's gotten enough attention uh, in the last hundred or so years. So go ahead and check him out. He's a pretty obscure guy. <laughs> it's also the best plug because normally, you know, social media, the way that it's structured economically, it forces us into this neoliberal economic model where everyone becomes a personal brand, right? Yeah, so even yeah. having a, a discussion of Marxism at the end of every interview, you always have to be like, hey, what, what do you want to plug? It's always like, you know, uh, here's my personal brand. 
That's you the become, best you, plug. Read you, become a, you become a grind set guy without realizing yeah. you're wanting to. Just for, like, that's just the hamster wheel that gets, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I'll just say, yeah, read. Yeah, Lennon's good. Read him. Great. Well, uh, yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. So with that said, I want to thank everyone who listened and watched. As always, in addition to being a video version, this is going to be a podcast version that you can find in all platforms. Just look up Multipolarista. And I'll see you all in a few days. I'm going to be doing an episode about the historic 20-year cooperation agreement that was signed between Venezuela and Iran. I'll be doing that later this week. So thanks to everyone, and I'll see you all next time.